I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. And that is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. This is Ravi Gupta, co-founder of the Arena. And today I interview Dr. Abdul El Sayed, candidate for governor of Michigan. Abdul has accomplished a lot in his 30 plus years on this planet. He grew up in Michigan, became a Rhodes Scholar representing the University of Michigan, and then became a doctor and then was nominated and served as the youngest health commissioner of a major American city, a job he held up until declaring his candidacy for governor. Abdul has been a big member of the arena community, has spoken at a number of our events, and has impressed so many of our members. This is a really enjoyable conversation, so let's jump in. Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. It's an honor to be here. So, Abdul, one of the things uh, that I just learned about you is that you've spent a lot of time navigating different faiths as you grew up in Michigan. Uh, You have a part of your family that uh, came up Muslim, and then you've also spent a lot of time, particularly with your grandparents, who were Presbyterian. And I thought that stood out to me because I spent a lot of time myself. You know, my, my dad is Hindu, my mom is Christian. Uh, how did you navigate competing or different faiths growing up uh, and navigating those two worlds? Yeah, I think, uh, Ravi, I think you'd agree with me on this experience that, um, you know, the, the principal faiths in the world um, sort of come to the, the questions that matter. Uh, a sense of how we treat people, a sense of the responsibility to family and friends and uh, a broader sense of justice and equity. Um, they treat them pretty similarly. And, um, you know, one of the one of the honors of my life has been um, to, 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 to come up in uh, an environment where I had the opportunity to not only glimpse, but appreciate and engage the similarities across different kinds of people. Um, and, uh, you know, you're right, my, my grandparents are, uh, are Presbyterians, Jan and Judy Johnson, and I lived with them um, while I was in college, just 20 minutes north of, of Ann Arbor in Livingston County. And then I've got an uncle, <clears throat> Uh, my uncle Piot, who um, was an immigrant from what was what was then the USSR, what is now Poland, um, who uh, who was an avowed atheist, and you know, I remember uh, very distinctly my my Thanksgiving table. I mean, it happens almost every year uh, where you've got these very different people. My father, who uh, is a devout Muslim um, and and also a part time imam who leads prayers at various mosques in Southeast Michigan. Uh, my grandparents, um, who are both uh, who are both Presbyterian. Um, and my grandma, who's a deacon, and then my uncle Piot, who's an atheist, coming around a kitchen table uh, to to enjoy turkey and um, and celebrate our country, uh, and then also having conversations about um, similarities and differences. And I think the beauty of our country is the capacity to come together, identify uh, civic similarities, and then um, and then approach them together, hand in hand. And I've I've been uh, blessed and lucky uh, to have that experience in my own family. So one thing I noticed about you is that you have uh, a lot of family members in the sciences. Uh, your dad's an engineer. You got people who are doctors in your family. Uh, it seems to be that that's the trend in your family. Uh, so how early did you know you wanted to be a doctor? And how early did you know that you wanted to transition from being a doctor to playing a larger role in public service? Yeah, I, I loved science growing up. Both my parents are, um, so my, my dad's an engineering professor. My mom is um, a physician who now works as a nurse practitioner. 
uh, in mental health. My um, stepmom, uh, with whom I grew up, is is also a professor of engineering. Uh, my wife's a doctor. I mean, all of us grew up in sort of a household where science was just the language we spoke in our house. I mean, I, I remember uh, distinctly dinners where um, uh, my dad or my mom would start with a you know a, a, a proposition about how the world worked, and then <clears throat> we would go around the table. Uh, trying to prove or disprove based on uh, our understanding of of you know phenomena um, and physics and chemistry and biology, um, and I knew that having grown up in the household that I did, where I had the opportunity to traverse multiple different faith uh, traditions, um, spend a lot of my time uh, in the summers back in uh, Alexandria where my father grew up, and then you know alternate between there and, and Gratiot County where my mom grew up, um, and. Uh, and, 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 and so I thought I wanted to use science to, to help people. And that's what led me to a career um, in medicine. In, in college, I actually studied biology and politics. And I just remember uh, very distinctly when I came home that first winter and told my dad that I wanted a dual major in biology and politics. He just gave me this sort of uh, look and he was just like, you are so very, very confused. Um, <laughs> I know that look. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just a sense of like, my God, my kid's gonna, <laughs> um, but, uh, but they're not as different as, as they might otherwise seem. And I came to really appreciate the, the, the parallels between them, right? Because if biology is the set of, uh, rules by which our cells make decisions about scarce resources in our bodies. Um, well then, you know, politics is the set of rules by which, uh, our communities make decisions about scarce resources in society, and the ways in which biology usually gets it right and politics often gets it wrong. Uh, I think there's a very strong parallel there, and also a responsibility to dig further. And as I as I approached my career um, in medicine and spent a lot of time learning about that biology, I came uh, instinctively to appreciate um, the importance of public health simply because you know my childhood had seen me going from. Uh, from from Egypt, where uh, there is vast disparity and um, and society is not engaged in the work of protecting its citizenry in the way that it is in the U.S. Uh, to the U.S., where I where I took advantage of those things every day, um, and uh, and I so I, I became very interested in understanding disparities in health uh, by region and by race and by um, socioeconomic status. Uh, and so I, I realized that my career was going to veer in the in the direction of the the, the, the social aspect um, of health, and, and ultimately led to, led me to public health. But science um, has been for me uh, a great um, checking point because uh, there is just a, a a sense of truth and not um, in science that that I think is actually quite calming and really important. Um, and when we think about our own civics, it's really easy to get lost in the minutia. Um, but when we, when we ask ourselves about our values, there is, there is truth and untruth. There is what's right and what's not right. And, um, and I think we have to be a lot better about being very honest about what's right. Because I think when, uh, the, the moment leadership gets corrupted is the moment when leadership, um, loses its consistency on its own values, um, <clears throat> and is willing, uh, just, uh, for, for sake of ease, um, um, or, or, or for sake of, uh, of victory, um, to corrupt its own values to get somewhere. And I think science teaches us that in the, in, in the end, truth is incorruptible. Um, and we have to find that kernel in truth in everything we do. And so, you know, one other interesting fact that stood out to me, you know, I, I decided when I was a kid, I was going to go to the State University of New York and had a, an amazing experience there while I watched a bunch of my friends go off to uh, private schools, uh, private universities. And I noticed that 
you you doubled down on Michigan twice now, uh, and you decided, I'm sure you were a great student in high school. What made you decide to stay within the state for university, and how was that experience? So I I um I went to the University of Michigan for for a couple of reasons. I, I really first I grew up watching uh, Michigan play football uh, back in the late '90s, early 2000s, and uh, told myself that someday I would uh, wear the winged helmet too. Um, I, I thought I was going to wear it playing football. I really loved football growing up, except for I stopped growing when I was five eight, and um, <laughs> that was the end of that. Um, but I did get to play lacrosse there, and uh, and so that was a really fantastic opportunity to see the country and 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 to to represent the university wearing the winged helmet. And so I'm very thankful for that. Um, I also, uh, you know, I, the the university I think is such a jewel uh, when it comes to public universities and it comes to institutions. Uh, supported by the state of Michigan, um, because it just has this incredible social justice history. Um, one of the first universities uh, to, to to maintain um, an incredibly high echelon of academic achievement and also admit uh, people of color and minorities and women um, at times where that was unheard of. Um, and then, uh, as a public university, it it really is uh, it really is as they say. Um, the uncommon education for the common man, um, and that's a place that's a that's a, an ideal that I, I think is just uh, quite aspirational and inspirational for me. Um, and then lastly, I, I got to live with my grandparents uh, during college, and um, that was an incredible experience. Because I think when you when you live with folks um, who have tremendously more uh, wisdom and world experience than you do, uh, it, it kind of they become a canvas for your own uh, experiences um, and a canvas that that sort of shines a deeper light on history, um, and so. You know, whatever the trials, tribulations of your day look like, to to sit with people and to talk to people who um, have experienced vastly more uh, than you have, I think puts that in context for you, um, and it's really situating. And I wouldn't have traded that it traded that experience uh, of either going to the university or living with my grandparents for anything. So uh, I'm really thankful for the opportunities that I had at Michigan. Well, obviously, that education served you well. You went on to become a Rhodes Scholar and a doctor, but you weren't just uh, any doctor, you were the youngest health commissioner of a major American city at the age of 30. Uh, what do you think gave the mayor the confidence to tap you for that role? When, uh, so it's a, you know, it's a funny story. I, um, I, I had been a professor for a couple of years at Columbia and, uh, it was loving my life. I mean, I got to spend, uh, a lot of my life on the road going all over the world, talking about interesting ideas, but I realized that the work that I was doing uh, was focused on less and less, um, going deeper and deeper, and um, and I just felt like this work would not translate into uh, the aims that I had for it, which is to 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 make people healthier and to uh, address the inequities in in access to to high quality health um, that we see across place and 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 time and and people, and um, and so I wanted to get my hands dirty, and I actually reached out to a friend of mine who. Uh, had just taken a job as a special advisor to the mayor. Um, he had just graduated from Yale Law, and um, it's sort of an uncommon choice to make as a Yale Law grad to go work for the mayor of um, of, of, a, of a Midwestern city. And he uh, did that. So I reached out to him, and I I, um, I asked him about his experiences. We decided to have lunch, which was kind of odd because it was Ramadan, so he had lunch, and I talked to him. <laughs> he just watched. <laughs> uh, it gave me a lot of, lot of time to just air my soul. Um and, um, and so, you know, I brought some CVs with me and I was just like, you know, maybe there's an opportunity here to work in public health. Uh, lo and behold, they had been looking for somebody to, to restart, um, the health department for some time. Those, those CVs ended up on the mayor's desk and he called me up and, um, 
uh, and he asked if I was interested in the public health job. And I was like, absolutely. He's like, great, I'll see you in two weeks. And I, I didn't quite know what public health job, but I knew it was a job in public health in Detroit, uh, which was home. And um, so I spent the next uh, two weeks learning everything I could about public health in Detroit, both the history of the health department, which um, is really uncommon because uh, one of the consequences of austerity um, in Detroit was that when the city was was uh, was facing bankruptcy and state takeover, they ended their 185-year-old health department. A $96 million, 300-person um, institution uh, was gone. And, <clears throat> and that in a city with the highest infant mortality rate um, in the country, higher than in Mexico, uh, in a city with um, uh, an asthma exacerbation rate, which is triple the, the state average, and um, the, the, the likelihood of exposure to lead, which is one in 10, which is four times the national average, um, no health department, right? Instead, you had this nonprofit that had been failing for the past several years. Um, and so I, I did my research on Detroit um, and what we could do uh, and, and sort of came with the, the recognition that if we were able to spread our services out across the 140 square miles, that is Detroit proper, and to think critically about um, health throughout a life course that we really could make an impact and do so uh, at scale um, with tremendously less um, than than a lot of other cities already have. Um, and so we sat down again over lunch, uh, which gave me the opportunity to talk a lot about my vision. Um, and two hours later, he's like, look, have you ever done anything like this before? And I was like, nope. He's like, what leadership experience do you have? And I said, well, I, um, I, I, I run and lead a couple of research groups at Columbia, but none of them are more than five people. Um, and I was <laughs> captain of three sports when I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you seem like the kind of guy who works hard. I said, I absolutely work hard. Um, I'm the, you know, I'm the child of immigrants. I don't know anything else. Um, but, uh, but he's like, look, if, if, um, you know, when I was 29, somebody gave me a job I, I probably shouldn't have had, uh, but I made the most out of it. And, um, and you know, w- w- will you work hard and make the most out of this? I was like, I don't know any different. So wow. uh, he's like, you got the job. And I was like, <clears throat> Mr. Mayor, there's only one issue here. I actually don't know which job you're talking about. He's like, well, the director of the health department, of course. I was like, oh, cool, great, um, fantastic, yes, uh, which my wife had just matched into her um, top choice residency program back in New York, and, uh, and we had wanted to come home for some time, but um, you know, I, I, I was unsure what the, what the circumstance was going to be. Um, I had to go home, and we, she and I had a, a really long conversation about you know, uh, our sense of this, our sense of responsibility to uh, to service, um, what this opportunity would mean for her and for me, and and, and probably more importantly for the city, um, and um, and you know what our responsibilities were, and you know my my uh, my wife Sarah has always been uh, just the most incredible blessing I've ever had in my life. We got married when I was when when I was in college when we were both in college, and um, you know she recognized the value of this, and um, and so about a month and a half later, I was I had half of our stuff in a U-Haul. Uh, on the way back home to live in Detroit, she was going to finish out her intern year in New York and, and come through the next year and um, and uh, got to work. Wow. It's something you said, I, I did not plan to ask you about this, but something you said really struck me, which is you're a child of immigrants, you don't know anything else but hard work. Something that's been on my mind lately, especially thinking about my dad, um, who you know has a different standard for what hard work is than most people I, I know. I worry about you know, how many generations does that last? You know, you ever think about that, like your kids and then your kids' kids, like how do you, how do you keep that immigrant ethic alive as folks grow up in, in, you know, so much privilege in this country? You know, Ravi, it's something I think about a lot. My, um, 
my my wife Sara uh, is pregnant with our first kid, and um, and I think a lot about uh, both the good, the bad, and even also the ugly of um, the experience of being raised as as sort of a third culture kid, as I think they call us. Um, and, um, and I, I wonder about how it is we continue to engage our children with the intensity of the responsibility of hard work, right? So the thing my dad would always say, my dad was the son of a vegetable salesman and an illiterate homemaker. Um, and for him getting out of the life that, that was destined for him, which was to sell vegetables in Alexandria or drive a cab like my, uh, my cousins do, um, that that he did uh, through his work, and so it was it was survival for him, um, yeah. and in doing so with a sense of what was possible, even though he had never actually seen it. Right, and that that to me is what's most astounding, um, is that he did not actually know the set of experiences he was working for. He just knew he was working his butt off for a different set of experiences than the one he had in front of him. Right, and and doing that, you know, he would go to school and then he would come home and help his dad with the chores in the market, which, you know, when you sell vegetables, the chores in the market are never ending um, and hard work. And then he would, and then he would uh, study um, on the roof of their apartment building by the light of a lamp that was across the street. And um, he would study well into the night because he had five brothers and sisters who were all sleeping in the one bedroom uh, of the house uh, or the apartment that they lived in. And, um, and I think about, you know, all of the comforts that I had. My dad would always tell stories that, uh, that um, you know, when his dad would catch him playing sports, you know, he'd get, a, he'd get in trouble because, um, because there was no time for that, right? And so when I, when I wanted to play sports, my dad would be like, you should just be thankful that I let you play, right? Um, and I, I never really appreciated what that actually meant uh, because, like, everybody plays sports. I don't know what's wrong with you. Um, um, but, you know, my, my dad had that sense of an intensity about him. And... What happened is that that intensity, you know, he pushed forward uh, to me and to my siblings um, in the circumstance of a set of opportunities that are far greater than he uh, or my mom could have ever imagined, right? And then the opportunity to take advantage of those those opportunities was imminent. Um, and I think that's what we had. And I think there is a sense that uh, with the next generation, I, you know, I'll never be able to um, inspire them uh, toward that sense of a responsibility to, to, to one's world or to one's opportunity set uh, or to one's own tenacity and hard work like my grandfather, like their grandfather did. Um, and at the same time, I think that's also probably not, 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 not a bad thing in certain circumstances. I think, you know, one of the challenges that many children of immigrants talk about is, is the sense that, um, is the sense that the motivation is entirely primal um, and sometimes not as uh, multifaceted as it, as it could be, right? And yeah. um, and for my kids, I want them to be able to be motivated by a sense of self-actualization that I think is a little bit greater than the sense of survival um, that, you know, that that clearly motivated somebody who, for, for whom responsibility was survival, right? Um, yeah. And so yeah. it's something that Sara and I have thought a lot about. And, um, uh, and I do think that there's a responsibility to keep uh, to keep our, our kids focused. I mean, one of the things that I worry a lot about is, you know, since before uh, they were born, I was in a position, at least in the institution in which I worked, where um, where I was a leader. And um, and I don't ever want my kids to assume that that just comes with being, right? That um, that, that, that is something that they have over people. Um, and I, I want them to have the humility 
uh, of recognizing a place in the world where they are one among many, um, that the equity that we uh, claim to want to build into the world is something that they inhabit in their daily lives um, and that they uh, are not treated any differently uh, because of what their parents do um, than, than any other kid. Now, I know that's almost impossible, uh, but it is something that we're going to strive a lot for. Um, yeah. And, um, and I want my kids to recognize that they are no better or no worse than anyone else, um, but they are among many. And, um, and they have a responsibility to the many and to themselves. Um, and that that responsibility has almost more to do with dignifying humanity um, than anything else and to uh, leveraging one's opportunities and one's talents um, to create a more just, a more equitable, a more sustainable world um, in a way that allows them to be at peace and be comfortable, but also somewhat uncomfortable with the existence of the opposite of those things in their lives. And so, you know, getting back to your role with the the mayor's office uh, and in Detroit, you had to make a tough decision. And in, in jumping into this governor's race, you left your role with the city. Is that a tough decision? Oh, it's it's one of the hardest decisions of my life. I um, I loved my job as a health director. I mean, it was <clears throat> it was the pinnacle of everything I had trained to do. I mean. It, you know, it's funny because I studied biology and politics, like I talked about, and, and people used to make fun of me. They're like, how are you going to put these two things together? I was like, I have no idea, but this is what I like. And um, and and I found that job, right? Um, being a, a health commissioner is is basically that. You know, your job is to leverage the political process uh, to create the opportunities for better health um, for a community of people. In my case, 680,000 um, of some of the most resilient, most incredible people I ever have had the opportunity to serve. That being said, um, I, I, I learned a lot of things in that role. Uh, first, I learned about how fickle leadership can be um, and that uh, too many leaders, I think, in our uh, society make decisions about what is uh, politically uh, easy rather than what is in the best interest of the people that they serve. Um, and we saw that, I think, in great display, um, unfortunately, in Flint, uh, which is a city just 50 miles north of me. And I I was watching as I was rebuilding an agency that had been shut down when my city was facing uh, emergency management and state takeover um, and watching those same emergency managers poison the same kinds of kids I was trying to protect in Flint. Um, and, and the response had everything to do with a failure to recognize one's own responsibility toward the people that they serve on the part of the governor um, and the governor's administration. And so, you know, that was a big wake up call to me. Uh, along the process of, of, of leadership. And I also learned in my role at the health department, um, having taken that, that institution from five uh, employees and 85 contractors to 220 people overall across five campuses, uh, multiplying city investment in public health 10 times, um, building programs to provide kids glasses and um, to provide mentorship for newly pregnant women and uh, to provide access to long-acting reversible contraceptives across this the uh, city. Uh, and um, uh, standing up to some of the biggest corporate polluters and having every school uh, certified lead-free uh, in terms of in terms of the water supply, that I was pretty good at leading uh, large, complex institutions and doing so in a way um, that did not exhaust the most important resource in front of me, which is people, um, but rather growing them and allowing them to recognize uh, the beauty of the work that we all have the privilege of doing, and also to believe in the end of the work that we we're doing. And I realized that the fit there was that um, was that I, I I knew I could do this work and I could do the work better uh, than the people who were uh, lined up to do it. And then I also watched as in 2016 it felt like democracy was breaking, and I had to ask myself, you know, will my kids have access to the same 
basic goods and services that government has been able to provide in this country for at least the past 70 years. Um, as, uh, as children of two doctors, my wife and I, versus what I had as the child of two immigrants. Um, uh, and, um, and I think we, we take these things for granted, um, but they're not, they're not things that don't come with work. And then uh, the other side of that is also that, you know, in this country, um, I, th- there is deep inequity in access. And it's not just inequity by race, it's inequity by region. Um, and I had a front row seat into, into those inequities and what they do to people's lives. Uh, and recognize the responsibility of, of, of helping to solve them. And public health, while really, really important work, in the end, as a health commissioner, you answer to one agenda item on somebody else's agenda that isn't always built on the question of how, uh, how do we serve people best. Um, and I realized that there was a responsibility to being able to reset that agenda, uh, to be asking those questions about, in a government for people and by people, where do we put people? And to me, we should put people number one, um, and number two, and number three, and number four, and keep going. And so, um, and so, I, I realized in that moment there was a responsibility. Now, I'm young. I'm 32. I'm uh, I'm brown, uh, and I'm Muslim. And um, in this day and age, a lot of folks would say that uh, those things are simply disqualifying um, for a candidate uh, to elected office. That being said, um, I know the skill sets that I bring to this table. I know that my state needs them right now, whether it's the skill set of a physician, a skill set of an educator, a skill set of a, of a true public servant, or the skill set of somebody who's young and understands um, the kinds of things that young people are looking for in their economy, uh, which is going to be the economy of the future. And so um, in that moment, I realized that if I didn't stand up, I would be, in effect, the agents of my own uh, my own discrimination. And so uh, you know, had a real long conversation with the people that mattered, uh, most importantly, Sarah, and then my family and, um, and, and folks with whom I'd worked and uh, realized that this was something that I needed to do. Um, ultimately, you know, Ravi, uh, I think uh, a lot of the reason that you, you've been so engaged in the arena um, and many others whom I've met through the community is that, uh, you know, history is going to prosecute this moment and history is, you know, nothing but uh, in effect a shill for, for justice. And, um, and I, I want to be on the right side of that. Yeah, and you face a relatively crowded field just in the Michigan primary. Uh, what separates you at this early phase from from your opponents? Like you, obviously, you know, you don't have to say anything necessarily negative about them. But like, wh- what do you think sets you apart in the positive sense? I know I am running. You know, it's funny in this day and age in politics. It's so uh, it's so clear to me that so many of of these sort of career politicians, these corporate politicians don't know why they're running and they do poll after poll, um, you know, focus group after focus group to figure out who they are and why they're running. I know exactly why I'm running. Um, and I can articulate it, uh, to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Um, because, because I know what it is. And, um, and I also know that, uh, in this moment, um, we need folks who truly and deeply believe in the optimism of, uh, of America's founding and, um, and the ideals on which it was founded, and I do. Um, you know, my my life story is is that story, and so um, so I, you know, my job is to go out there uh, day in and day out and have real conversations with real people about our country, about our democracy, about why I hope to serve them and serve it in this way, and um, and you know, and leave it leave it to them and leave it to God. Um, I uh, you know the the, the I, I I I want to lead. Um, based on a set of ideals. And 
to lead on those ideals, you have to campaign on those ideals, which makes it really easy for me. I'm not going to say things I don't believe. Um, uh, and um, <laughs> I, I will believe everything I say simply because for me, it's about being able to govern on a set of principles, not just win a campaign. Um, and I think yeah. there is a profound sense of um, of ease and optimism that comes out of that willingness to appreciate that in the end, it's about how you govern and how you lead, not how you win. Yeah. And I was just talking to your campaign staff about this, but there's a connection here between who you are, what you believe, and then who's supporting you at this early phase. And one thing that struck me watching you over the past few months is that uh, young folks, having having just spent a ton of time in Detroit for our second summit, young folks are really excited about your campaign. And, and your, can, your campaign was just telling me that you have around 2,000 volunteers right now and half are under the age of 34. Tell us what's going on here and what do you think is, is exciting young folks about your candidacy? Besides the fact that you're young, obviously. Yeah, so, so many of us are, uh, I think, newly energized because, because frankly, I, I think so many in our generation had thought we were the post-history uh, generation, uh, that everything worth happening had happened already. And so we just had time to like scroll through Facebook and figure out what we were going to eat for dinner on Yelp. Um, and it seems as though that's not true. There is a lot to fight for. And, um, and I think so many of us are getting up off the sidelines and jumping into the arena in whichever ways we are, uh, out of a recognition that there is a responsibility to build the kind of future that we are in the end going to inhabit. And, um, and I think that's what's motivating young folks. And what I'm doing is having simple conversations with people all over the state about what it is we want that future to look like and the responsibility that we all have to unite to build it. Um, even if we may share uh, different perspectives on the problem, both perspectives or all perspectives matter, so long as we're willing to continue to work together to make sure that all those perspectives bear weight on the solutions. And that kind of conversation is something a lot of folks in, in our generation have not heard yet. Um, and that kind of responsibility and call to responsibility um, is something I think we're all willing to accept. That's the reason I'm jumping in. That's the reason we're having a conversation today. And that's the reason nearly a thousand people under the age of 34 have signed up uh, to be a part of this campaign. I'll tell you, we've we've been knocking doors all over the state. We've already knocked 30,000 doors um, and um, and had those conversations with, with people all over the state. And they may not agree with us, um, but across the board, folks are uh, energized by what we're doing and recognize the value of it. So, you know, we've got another year plus um, to make this happen. We're building a movement. Um, and if that movement uh, lands me in uh, the governor's chair in Lansing, fantastic. But even if it doesn't, um, I'm still very proud of the fact that young people are getting engaged and involved in this way um, and recognize the implication that it's going to have for our politics, whoever ends up uh, in the governor's chair in Lansing in 2018. And so, you know, one challenge in engaging young voters is uh, that their that their connection to the history, either the history of Detroit or the state of Michigan, um, is uh, is different than somebody who's lived through all the different ups and downs that the city and the state have seen. Obviously, you could read about it, you could hear it from your families, you could be affected by that history, but it's a little different. And one of the things that I found, you know, looking at Detroit and Michigan, is that one of the animating debates. Uh, especially over the past decade, but for a long time, has been the state's role in various municipalities, whether it's the state's role in the Flint water crisis or the state takeover of the school system that you know has been going back for a while and most prominently since 1999, um, almost a bipartisan 
uh, state takeover in some ways. What's going on? Like, what what are the contours of this debate? And what's your position? Like, how do you talk about the state's role uh, in these quote unquote takeovers or um, you know these emergency managers, et cetera? Like, what's your governing philosophy about the state's role in municipal government? Yeah, I I, uh, I don't know if you had this experience, Robbie, but I had little siblings who I helped to learn how to ride a bike and. Um, one of the things about learning how to ride a bike is you're probably going to fall a couple times. And uh, and there's two approaches you can take when when your little sibling or your kid falls off the bike. You can either, you know, get upset with them, take the bike away, or you can recognize that this is part of the process and then help them back up and make sure that they're ready to go the next time. State government um, has has taken the former approach. It, it, it sort of, when city, when city governments sort of fall off the bike, they kick them and take away the bike. Um, and then ultimately try and ride the bike themselves and ultimately ride in the wrong direction, right? And that's what we've seen all uh, across uh, the state, except for in a very few number of circumstances. Um, I, I, I categorically oppose the emergency manager laws uh, for a number of reasons. The first is that they, they focus solely on, um, on, uh, on money rather than on providing high-quality operations to people who have suffered under a broken system for a long time. Second, they take away local control, and, um, and I think that is a critical uh, loss of opportunity and uh, loss of voice for people who uh, tend to be poorer and tend to be minorities across the state. And third, they just don't work. Um, I I, uh, I believe that there is a responsibility for us to appreciate the long history of what happened in places like Flint and in Benton Harbor and in Detroit, uh, rather than treat this as a new emergent problem. And what happened is that our state government bent over backwards to create corporate opportunities for large corporations. Um, that ultimately in in a sweep um, either went down or sent their jobs offshore or automated their jobs out so that there was no real corporate base. And in the case of the big three, they just left um, places like Flint and places like Detroit. And when, you know, some large percentage of your entire uh, economy up and leaves, um, it's going to have very, very serious circumstances and consequences uh, for the quality of your local government. And when that happens, um, we can't just blame local governments for all of a sudden being insolvent when their tax base and their person base uh, leaves, right? That is a that is a function of a broader economic trend that Detroit was on the spear tip of. And it's one that we have to correct. Um, and what's been more frustrating is even as the state has engaged in this sort of brutal enforcement of a set of laws that uh, in effect takes away people's voices and uh, the quality of their local government, um, we've been playing by the same economic playbook for a very long time. And so we're still trying to, uh, to, to acquire large corporate um, jobs uh, thousands at a time rather than doing the hard work of planting for grassroots kinds of small business opportunities across the state, which we know circulate more money through the economy and create opportunities for more people um, and, and are far less likely to be offshore or automated. Um, and so this has everything to do with a broken perspective on how the world works on the part of state government and um, a failed responsibility to act appropriately uh, and to protect the best ends of local government for uh, for the people who ultimately end up suffering, which are uh, disproportionately poor folk in places like Flint and Benton Harbor and Detroit, uh, who are also disproportionately people of color. Yeah. And, you know, one example of all of this is uh, just for context for our listeners, essentially since 1999, the state has... Uh, taken over the Detroit public school system, uh, most notably with an emergency manager law. 
that basically gives the state full control over the Detroit public school system. And uh, notably, and, and I think uh, too much to the, um, the support of the local community, the, they established now this Detroit Public Schools Community District, which is giving back uh, control with some caveats uh, back to local leadership to the school district. So as we look at this, I think there's a lot to be excited about in, in giving, especially with the framework that you just outlined, to give control back to the local community. But what would you say, you know, meeting a, a mother who's saying, look, like, I, I'm, I'm excited about local control. I don't trust the state. But I also don't want to go back to pre-1999 results either. Uh, what would you say to that mother about like what you as governor can do to help uh, paint a brighter future, better than it was before 1999 and better than it is right now for kids going through the Detroit public school system? Yeah, I went to school, uh, public school in Michigan, my whole, most of my, my, my childhood. And the only times that I didn't go to public school in Michigan were when I was uh, when my family lived in, in either Missouri or Florida in early elementary school. But I graduated from a great public school. Um, and uh, at the time that I graduated statewide, we were in the top 10 uh, in terms of educational performance um, uh, per state nationwide. Today, we are number 50 out of 50 in terms of educational improvements uh, over the past eight years as a state. Um, the failures in Detroit are really uh, just the tip of the iceberg in terms of a failure to invest in public education generally statewide. And a lot of that has been pushed by a cabal of, um, of ideologues uh, with, with Betsy DeVos as their leadership um, to disinvest from public schools, to create the opportunities for corporations to profiteer off of public education, and um, to vilify teachers. And <clears throat> I, um, I know that the reason that I succeeded in public schools, because I had some really, really fantastic teachers who uh, were well invested in, um, in a school district that had uh, the money it needed to do well. And so as a state, I think beyond um, beyond repealing the emergency manager approach, I think we also have to, uh, A, reinvest in public education, B, um, uh, stop uh, corporate profiteers from uh, taking over uh, low-income school districts across our state, and then C, I think we have to treat teachers fairly and make sure that we're creating a pipeline by which our best and brightest see uh, teaching uh, as a means of being able to give back in a way that's not going to break their own backs financially. So um, there's a lot we can do as, at a state, and those are all issues that I um, I hope to deeply invest in when I'm when I'm governor. So paint the picture for our listeners. What you know? Because one thing is, you know, I'm a charter school former charter school leader, but I ran a nonprofit charter school. Let our listeners know a little bit about what's going on in Detroit and in Michigan. Um, when you say folks are profiteering, something I think particularly striking is happening in Michigan, and it's connected to DeVos. Like, what kind of charters and and and, and voucher ideas have been pushed in Michigan on the on the kids of Michigan, and what have the results been? It's a, it's you know, I, I'm not against charter schools. I think charter schools can do a great job in certain circumstances, but we have to make sure they play by the same rules that uh, public schools play by. And what's happened in Michigan is that while you might have a nonprofit board. You have a uh, you have corporate operators of charter schools, and those corporate operators have every incentive to, in effect, come in, bring a large amount of capital, invest in the quality of a school building so that they have a good, high quality school, and then, um, because of the way that education is funded, 
basically per pupil per year allocations of public tax dollars, um, they have every incentive to then skim off the top of that as profit, um, as operators. And And Michigan allows for-profit charter schools, correct? Exactly. It it allows for-profit charter operators, right? So uh, you have a a, a non-profit board that becomes a shill in effect for an operator who then negotiates the contract so that uh, they're, they're taking more and more of uh, of the tax dollars that were intended to be spent uh, educating kids, right? So yeah. that that system to me is is corrupting because uh, it does two things that are that are, I think particularly bad. The first, nobody should be pocketing money that we all intended to invest in our kids. That's number one, just as a matter of course. And then number two, what happens in lower income school districts where populations are shrinking is that a lot of these corporate operators spend a lot of their money advertising. And if they're advertising and the public school's not, um, then they're going to take more and more of those kids, right, and, and make more and more of that money. And then what happens is you then force public schools to spend a lot of their money advertising too, which now draw, takes more and more money out of uh, what was supposed to be invested in our kids in the first place. And so this system here um, is, uh, is, is something that Betsy DeVos and her ilk uh, have, uh, have pushed in Michigan and ultimately given us uh, school districts across the state that are suffering. Uh, a quality of public school that um, is among the worst nationwide um, and have made a lot of rich people richer. Um, and I think all three of those outcomes are probably not things that we uh, want to invest in as a society. And so uh, we have to be able to fix this. And, and that means really putting, uh, putting the brakes on a flawed system uh, that's really intended to make rich people rich um, and instead start investing in, in a system uh, that educates our young people. Um. So, yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Michigan also is that it has one of the most lax authorizer laws. So it's not just who profits, but who even gets a charter in the first place. It's kind of a scary situation, even for folks who are a little bit more reform, education reform oriented in the Democratic Party like myself. Uh, But we're running out of time. Uh, The most important question is the last one, which is uh, how can folks get involved in your campaign, both people inside of Michigan and outside of Michigan? Yeah, absolutely. Look, we are running, I think, one of the most exciting uh, community-oriented, people-focused campaigns out there. We're already knocking doors. Um, we're canvassing for ballot petition signatures. Uh, and we've got just this great community forming around uh, around our campaign. And there are a lot of ways to be involved. Number one, uh, we're coming up against our biggest funding deadline of the campaign. It's the first time that uh, we're going to open our books and show uh, the kind of support that we've gotten financially from across uh, from across the state and across the country. And so um, we hope that uh, that if you're excited about the campaign, that you'll come through and contribute. Um, go to abdulformichigan.com. There you can also sign up to volunteer. And over the long term, there's going to be a lot of opportunities to do that. I hope you will sign up with us. Um, uh, there, are, there are some great opportunities to get involved. And then lastly, look us up on Facebook and Twitter, Abdul El Sayed, A-B-D-U-L-E-L dash, S like Sam, A-Y, E like Eddie, D like Dolphin. Um, and, uh, and the same on Twitter with no dash and no spaces. So, uh, so hope you'll look us up. Um, hope you'll share our stuff. Hope you'll, uh, come out and volunteer and hope you'll contribute to get us to, uh, our goal for our deadline. Uh, Ravi, it was really a fantastic opportunity to speak with you again. Um, really, really appreciate the work that you're doing to, uh, to grow the culture of civic engagement in our, um, in our demographic and in our communities. And, um, it's an honor and a privilege to, uh, to have spent the morning with you. Well, thank you, Abdul.